0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Americans are falling out of love with the automobile and taking up bicycles, and one result is more bicycle accidents.
1: Part of it is we have not yet trained drivers to uh, be careful before they get out of a car so they don't door somebody. Part of the problem is that we have not invested as much as we should in facilities to make cycling safer.
0: But many cyclists ignore the rules of the road. Still, bike-friendly cities are increasingly popular.
2: A city that's very bikeable and walkable is more livable. There's fewer vehicles from an environmental perspective, but there's also that whole feeling of what a city feels like when there's people about as opposed to just cars.
0: And Chinese satire, perhaps, about why their pollution might be a good thing. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt,
0: smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For years in America, the car has been king. As General Motors once put it, it's not just your car, it's your freedom. But increasingly, Americans are finding a new kind of freedom—the freedom from traffic jams and lack of exercise—that can be found behind the handlebars of a bicycle. So as driving mileage has dropped by more than 8 percent in the past decade, at the same time, the proportion of people commuting to work by bike has increased in 85 out of 100 of America's largest cities. One of those two-wheel commuters is Oregon Democrat Earl Blumenauer, the founder of the Congressional Bike Caucus. The representative recently introduced the Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Act, legislation that he says America badly needs.
1: We have an imbalance in federal transportation policies where a disproportionate number of the injuries occur to pedestrians and cyclists, but they receive a very small portion of the overall resources That should make our transportation safer. And so what we're uh, working on here is to have the Department of Transportation track fatalities and injuries by mode. Everybody, almost without exception, is a pedestrian at some point uh, in their journey. And you've noted that we've just seen an explosion in cycling interest around the country, and we need to make sure that we're doing all we can to make sure that experience is as safe as possible.
0: Let's talk about the the safety records uh, for bikes on our roadways. What are they like these days?
1: Well, what we have seen in communities like mine in Portland, Oregon, where we have had a dramatic increase in bicycle use, well over 400%. The accident rate is going down, but the number of accidents are going up. Uh, there are still too many. Part of it is we've got uh, cyclists who... Uh, Don't obey the rules of the road, which drives many uh, motorists crazy and, frankly, just gives me apoplexy. Part of it is we have not yet trained drivers to uh, be careful before they get out of a car so they don't door somebody. Part of the problem is that we have not invested as much as we should in facilities to make cycling safer, separated bike lanes signals that are geared for cyclists. Now,
0: what about the attitude of of automobile and and, and truck drivers on the road? I I use bike sharing in the Boston area to do the last couple of miles of my Mm -hmm. commute. I often take the Amtrak to get into Mm -hmm. the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, some drivers seem outright hostile to bikes coming by.
1: I think that's true. As I mentioned a moment ago, it's important for the cycling community that they be respectful of motorists and they don't do things, you know, running red lights or being reckless. I think that's important. Although I've had limited experience actually driving in Boston over the years, uh, when I have, I have found that there are cranky drivers that I encounter when I'm a motorist. So (laughs) I I would think that it's not unique to the uh, car cycle dynamic. Part of This challenge is to help people understand that the cyclist is the friend of the person driving a car.
0: How's that?
1: Every person that's in a bike lane next to you is not in a car in front of you. They're not competing for a parking space at the ultimate destination. They're not polluting the air because they're burning calories instead of fossil fuel. We've not done a very good job, I think, of helping people understand how the promotion of cycling is the quickest and cheapest way to get more highway capacity.
0: Congressman, you are famously the founder of the Congressional Bike Caucus. Tell me about the goals of your caucus, and uh, tell me about some of the other members.
1: The goal of the Congressional Bike Caucus was to bring people together, around issues of cycling. In an era of partisan divide, the bike caucus is bike partisan. It's uh, been Republicans and Democrats together. A Republican congressman from uh, Florida, uh, Vern Buchanan, was telling me that his cycling this year, he'd lost 35 pounds. He knew to the nearest mile how far he'd gone, and it was several thousand miles this year, and that he was just absolutely committed to uh, supporting better bike facilities in his district in Florida and around the country. There's a Congressman Mike Doyle from uh, the Pittsburgh area who uh, determined that when he turned 60, he was going to celebrate it by going on a bike ride of over 100 miles. And he trained. Uh, He too lost 30 or 40 pounds. He raised thousands of dollars for charity. It was really quite a testimonial. So Republicans, Democrats, for me it's been an island of agreement and uh, positive stories uh, in a climate that uh, too often is negative and partisan.
0: And how big is the Congressional uh, Bike caucus?
1: At one point we had over 230 members, a majority of uh, Congress.
0: Congressman, to what extent is there any kind of anti uh, biking caucus uh, on Capitol Hill or are there members who think that biking is really a silly thing to care about
1: Well several years ago there was a reaction from some people uh, in Republican leadership cutting some ads about you know cycling being a stupid response to the energy crisis actually one incumbent Republican who cut a reelection ad against a challenger this is a gentleman in Pennsylvania saying what was her answer ride a bike and she actually had a response at a press conference to which she rode a bike and she said absolutely this is one of the simple common sense things we can do that make people feel better and that doesn't add to congestion and pollution and it stretches our energy resources there was another person who literally came to the floor mocking our work on cycling and I will say that uh, it invoked a pretty ferocious response. Cyclists are getting much more involved politically, and uh, there were thousands of dollars spent against this guy who decided to poke fun uh, and ridicule the cycling, and uh, he subsequently uh, joined the bike caucus, I will say. And uh, the woman who rode her bike to the press conference responding to the negative ad about cycling ended up winning.
0: By the way, what's your commute like in Washington?
1: Well, my commute in Washington is only about a mile. For 17 years, I've used a bicycle as my primary way of getting around, uh, zipping up to uh, speak at a conference or to a meeting at the White House. I've been able to burn hundreds of thousands of calories. I've never been stuck in traffic, and I always find a place to park.
0: What's the bike rack like at the White House,
1: by the way? (laughs) The first time I did it, I actually had to talk my way onto the White House grounds. Ironically, I had been invited by Vice President Gore to come up and talk about some environmental things. And I biked up, and the uh, Secret Service was just kind of like, we don't think so. And uh, ultimately, it was just, well, what if I had driven a car? Well, we'd open the gate, and you'd come in. I said, well, pretend it's a car, uh, uh, but just leaned it up against the front of the White House. I haven't had that, those problems of late. There is just more and more interest in Washington, D.C. generally over how much cycling has added to the vitality of the Washington, D.C. comeback.
0: What do you see as the overall trend of biking in the United States now?
1: Uh, The overall trend is one of dramatic growth. In city after city, the bike commute is uh, increasing 10 and 20 percent a year. Bicycle sharing is an interesting metaphor that has just uh, captured the imagination of not just urban transportation officials, but uh, city planners around the world. There are over 650 bike sharing systems worldwide.
0: You said a metaphor. What do you
1: mean a metaphor? Well, a bicycle is the indicator species of a livable community. This is a community that is human scale. That is where people are safe. It's welcoming. From my vantage point, this is a symbol of what we need to be doing with policy generally in your nation's capital. It's a very powerful tool and a representation of how far we've come.
0: So let's cut to the chase here. How much money is Congress willing to appropriate and authorize for biking?
1: We don't know yet. Part of the problem is that we're just having a collapse of the Highway Trust Fund. We are, in a very serious way, approaching the October 1st deadline, where if something doesn't happen, there will be no transportation construction money for new projects, whether they are freeways, light rail, or bike paths. We have not raised the gas tax in 20 years. So we're in a world of hurt. The key for us in Congress is to be able to face up to the fact that the Highway Trust Fund needs to be replenished. Uh, I would argue the gas tax increased for the first time in 20 years. If we don't deal with the funding crisis, it doesn't make any difference what your mode is. It's going to be in trouble.
0: Earl Blumenauer is a member of the U.S. House from Oregon and founder of the Congressional Bike Caucus. Congressman, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
1: It's always a pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation.
0: Coming up, startling evidence from the world of science that shows fears can be inherited from one generation to the next. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And now, another in our series, Power Shift, about the transition to low-carbon energy in the Bay State. There are few things more energy efficient than generating your own transportation by pedal power. Still, as the snow and ice and dark of winter descend upon us here in the north, bicycling might seem unwise and, frankly, unappealing. But increasingly, bike share programs in cold cities, including Toronto, Denver, and New York, are staying open through all four seasons. Even when there's snow or ice, some year-round riders say the roads are often clearer than the sidewalks. The Hubway bike-sharing system in the Boston area shuts down completely for the winter come Thanksgiving, except this year. The Cambridge part of Hubway is getting a winter tryout. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has the story.
4: It's a cold, overcast day, but bike commuters in Cambridge don't seem to mind. Some are dressed for the weather in heavy winter coats and thick mittens. Others wear sleek spandex and reflective orange jackets. At least a dozen bikers are stopped at a traffic light in Inman Square. A student, Metali, dressed in a warm hat and long black jacket, heads for the rack of Hubway bikes. She uses a key fob the size and shape of a thumb drive to unlock one.
5: I love it. I mean, I think there's so many students, especially, that use the bikes to get to school.
4: She says she finds biking easier than relying on public transit.
5: I do take the bus in the evenings if it's too late at night and I don't feel like biking, Um, but a lot of the buses are only every other hour, so it's kind of, you have to wait a long time. Then I feel like I might as well just bike, I'm wearing all these
4: layers anyway. It's that kind of convenience that's made Boston's public bike share program so popular. Roughly 9,500 people paid the $85 annual membership fee that allows them to ride bikes from any of the 129 stations across greater Boston. But from now until March, the 27 locations in Cambridge will be the only ones open. Roughly 9% of people in Cambridge commute to work by bike. That's the fifth highest in the country. So Cambridge is an ideal location for a pilot program to demonstrate how a winter bike share could work out in snowy New England. Charlie Salk is a big fan.
0: I support the extension of the season. I really wish they could have brought it out to Boston as well.
4: Falk's a student at MIT and he plans to use the bikes as much as possible over the winter.
0: So, right now, I, I'm experimenting with ways I can still use the bikes, but for the most part, I'm probably not going to be using it nearly as much as I was before because it's just in Cambridge and I tend to travel between Boston and Cambridge a lot.
4: Do you think you'll still want to ride the bike when there's, you know, eight inches of snow and slush on the ground?
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, the ironic thing is that. When the bikes go away, I tend to use my skateboard more often because that's my next go-to mode of transportation. So,
6: you know, if I can get around on my skateboard, I'm sure the bike should be no problem.
4: And Cambridge officials want to be sure that neither snow nor rain will keep Hubway bikers from swiftly completing their journeys. Hubway is really meant to be a
2: transit system. It's a transportation system for people to be able to use, and that
4: means that it should be accessible all the time. Kara Siderman is the transportation program manager for the city of Cambridge. She says Cambridge is particularly well-suited for this winter pilot program. It made sense to pilot it in Cambridge because we have
2: a bit easier time. All of our stations except one are off-street, so they're not going to be dealing with the snow plows. Those are things that we would have to really think about in the future if it did get expanded in the entire system, but it was an easier decision because that obstacle or that challenge was not really in place. But when the snow does come, Siderman says they have a plan for dealing with it. The company that runs Hubway for us, Alta Bike Share, is under contract, and they will be responsible for clearing the stations of the snow and managing the bikes going in and out. There is also a way to electronically shut down the systems remotely so that you can't take a bike out. This has actually been done a couple of times like last year when the Hurricane Sandy was approaching, the system was shut down in advance.
4: Hubway bikes first started rolling around the Boston area in 2011. Since then, the program's grown to serve some 90,000 casual users each year in addition to annual members. The Boston system was modeled after Montreal's bike share program which operates in spring, summer, and fall.
2: Now systems that are going into place, including New York and Chicago, other big cities with serious winters, are assuming that they're going to be a year-round system.
4: Cities like Copenhagen, Denmark, and Helsinki in Finland already have year-round bike share programs. And despite the cold, they are very popular. Of course, a winter bike share system comes with additional costs for maintenance and snow removal. And at the same time, revenue goes down because fewer people choose to ride. But Seiderman says it's still worth it.
2: And in general, a city that's very bikeable and walkable is more livable. And you have more people out in the streets and more people communicating with each other. And then there's fewer vehicles from an environmental perspective. But there's also that whole feeling of what a city feels like when there's people about as opposed to just cars. And it's the kind of city that we want to see.
4: Officials estimate that in a busy month, Hubway bikers offset 100,000 pounds of carbon dioxide and burn more than 6.6 million calories. Last year, Hubway Surveys asked riders what they would most like to change about the system. Siderman says overwhelmingly the response was to extend the program year-round. I would say that this
2: apparently is one of the most popular things the city has ever done based on the feedback that I've gotten. Um, You know, certainly people legitimately call up the city or send us communications when they have a complaint about something, but less often do we get the kudos and I have gotten more feedback about people being excited about having the Hubway open year round than
4: almost anything since Hubway itself opened. The Cambridge pilot program is just getting started, and surrounding cities are watching closely to see how winter biking works out here. If all goes well, next year Hubway riders might be able to pedal year round through all of greater Boston. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: Whenever we welcome a new baby into the family, someone's bound to say, look, he has his father's eyes, or she has her mother's hair. For most of us, that's how we understand inheritance, that we get particular physical characteristics from our parents. But new research recently published in the journal Nature Neuroscience based on lab animal research, has found that direct experiences and fear could be transmitted down through generations. We turn now to Moshe Schiff, a professor at McGill University in Montreal, to learn how the experiment worked.
7: What the researchers did is to expose a mouse to a smell and at the same time shock the mouse with a mild electro shock. So now the mouse associates the smell with the shock. And whenever the mouse will smell that smell, the mouse will startle because the smell reminds the mouse of the shock. This is a known property of animals. They recognize smell that protects them from fearful experiences. For example, mice and rats uh, are afraid of fox urine. And that makes sense because a fox is a predator of a mouse. And this way the mouse can recognize when there's a fox around and survive. So how did they transmit this to their offspring? So usually this is uh, selected probably by natural selection. Animals acquire mutations during their evolutionary lifetime that protect them and uh, allow them to survive against their predators. And probably that's how mice recognize fox urine. But in this case, this was not going through natural selection because the mouse passed it directly to its offspring through the sperm.
0: So the offspring, uh, this worked in the first generation as well as the next generation? The gener- second. I think
7: they went up to two generations, yes.
0: So if we were talking in human terms, you're talking not just a child, but a grandchild.
7: A grandchild should remember an experience like this, yes.
0: Uh, how is this possible? I mean, how could the children and grandchildren of the original mouse fear something that they never experienced
7: themselves? We don't know how this could happen. I mean, I still, you know, it sounds like science fiction. This idea that experience can direct you know, uh, the phenotype of next generations is very problematic and controversial because we don't have a clear mechanism. However, uh, what is coming up in, in the last decade uh, is possible that there is an epigenetic mechanism that allows this to happen. That is, the experience changes the uh, epigenetic state of the sperm. And I'll explain immediately what's epigenetics. And that sperm is now marked and can pass this mark to future generations.
0: Yes, I'm ready to hear the explanation of what exactly is epigenetics and how that works.
7: So epigenetics is the additional information on genes. So we inherit from our parents the genes. And they are inherited in a very accurate way from generation to generation. And up till now, we thought that only those genes are inherited from generation to generation. And therefore, there was no way an experience could be inherited from generation to generation. But now we know that genes are programmed, and that programming involves marking of the genes by chemicals and also packaging the genes in chemical material. And that will define if a gene works or not. So, for example, if the experience manage to change the way a particular gene is marked in the sperm, that mark could be passed to the next generation. And indeed, what the authors have shown is that a chemical mark on the gene that codes for the receptor of this specific smell was changed in the sperm. And that was probably passed to the next generation. What evidence do
0: we have that epigenetics works from one generation to the next?
7: The evidence is still sparse, but there is accumulating evidence. There is epidemiological studies from humans that show that experiences could be transmitted across generations. I mean, the most famous one is the Dutch famine of 1944. And um, these are Dutch who, who were exposed to very low calories, punished by the Germans. And we see now phenotypes in their grandchildren, metabolic phenotypes, And there is a suspicion that that was an epigenetic transmission of the experience of famine. You know, the uh, famine during the pregnancy of their grandmother kind of adapted them to a life of famine, right? And in a life of lack of food, you better binge every food you find and turn it into fat. But what happens when the grandchildren now are born into a rich Dutch society, that preparation by the experience becomes maladaptive. In animals, there is evidence that certain exposure of chemicals, uh, like Skinner's work, could be passed up to four or five generations. And in that case, it was pesticides. Uh, There is um, evidence about depression and aggression. So there is evidence that experiences could be passed from generation to generation, and exposures could be passed from generation to generation. But what's unique about this paper is that it points to a specific gene, a specific receptor, and a specific smell. This idea of smell fear is so fundamental in evolution because it is something that is required for animals to protect themselves from their prey. And it was always believed that the way that is generated is through natural selection. This is the first time we have an epigenetic mechanism for that.
0: So the first time that... Instead of being hardwired, this is a function of one's parents' or grandparents' experience. Right. Uh, What do you suppose is the role of epigenetics in evolution? I mean, it would seem like the fear response that uh, was found in mice is an evolutionary adaptation, but it's expressed far more quickly than we typically think that evolution could do.
7: Absolutely. You know, the classic evolutionary theory is based on what we call natural selection, which is there is a random, slow change in genes that are selected by environment, and um, those few individuals that are selected will eventually form the founders of the next generation of animals, and all the others will disappear, and that's how natural selection works. That's a very slow process. And epigenetics introduces a whole new speed to that process because in difference from natural selection, which is random, this process is directed. If indeed uh, epigenetics works in evolution, it will change all our calculations and the whole way we look at the way species originated and the way species evolved.
0: So, what about those things that we just usually call instinct? And what I'm thinking of now is the generational migration of monarch butterflies, right? It's the fourth generation of monarchs. They migrate thousands of miles from the north back to Mexico to the exact same tree where their great-grandparents started the migration months before, to a place they've never been to uh, themselves. No one really seems to know how they do that. I'm just wondering if epigenetics could be an explanation.
7: Epigenetics could be a very interesting way of explaining that. And in my opinion, probably the only way. You know, I don't know about anybody who has actually demonstrated that there is an epigenetic change in these butterfly marks. But epigenetics might play a big role in those, um, you know, transgenerational experiences that are so dominant in the animal world.
0: This research really raises a lot of questions, of course, about people and acquired behavior. I mean, what about people born and raised in cities with a lot of crime and violence? Does this study indicate that they might be more prone to living a life involving crime and violence? Is there, uh, are we talking about learned behaviors, uh, or
7: would epigenetics be a factor? Being born in an aggressive environment causes changes by itself. And so you can pass from generation to generation aggression just by the behavior. So if the father is aggressive and the child is born into an aggressive family, the child will become aggressive. And so you don't need sperm to transmit that. We can transmit it through behavior. But epigenetics could be a factor. And if part of it is indeed transmitted through the germline, it makes it harder to solve, right? Because if it's uh, behavioral, if we change the environment, you can change that but if it was already transmitted in the sperm, how can you change that?
0: What could be the dark side to this? I mean, you talked about depression going down generational lines, aggression going
7: down generational lines. I think the dark side is that, to a certain extent, you're a consequence of the sins of your father. But there is an optimistic side to epigenetics. Genetics is final. Once you change the sequence, it's impossible to change it back. Whereas epigenetics is reversible so if experience could create epigenetic marks there should be experience that could remove epigenetic marks and therefore there might be a way that even if you inherited you know dreadful experiences from your past generations that a different experience will be able to remove it and that might guide a lot of our behavioral studies and research in the next decades
0: Moshe Schiff is a professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at McGill University. Professor Schiff, thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. And now for some stories from Beyond the Headlines with Peter Dykstra, who publishes the dailyclimate.org and Environmental Health News. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. So what's Beyond the Headlines this week?
8: Steve, we're going to start you out in that nest of naysaying, that den of dysfunction. Uh, Our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and John Podesta has a new job there. John's a Washington heavyweight. He was uh, President Clinton's last White House chief of staff. For the past decade, he's run a think tank called the Center for American Progress. John Podesta is going to be a special advisor to President Obama, and his portfolio will focus on energy and environment. That's something he did a lot for for President Clinton.
0: So I imagine environmental advocates are doing a happy dance and maybe some folks in industry aren't so pleased.
8: Well, you know what, I, I've seen very little public reaction on the industry side, but green groups, uh, yes, absolutely, they're pleased. There's also one big question mark with all of this that I see. He's been very publicly critical for the past few years of the Keystone XL pipeline project. So critical that he's going to sit out on any discussions in the White House about Keystone. So you've got one of the highest profile environmental issues the White House has now. You have a guy coming in with strong opinions, and because he has strong opinions, he's not going to make his opinions known. To me, that's like John Podesta coming in saying he'll be a vegetarian except for the bacon and the lamb chops and the cheeseburgers.
0: So we're going to have to see how that works. But would he come back to the White House if he weren't given assurances that Keystone isn't going to have to happen on his watch?
8: Well, you know, you bring up a very good point. Presidents obviously worry about their legacy. Key assistants to presidents also worry about their legacy. And John Podesta's really uh, staked out very, very strong environmental stand as an opponent of Keystone. I doubt he'd want to come back and on his watch, as soon as he gets there, have something he feels so strongly about going the opposite direction.
0: Now, I understand that you have dug up, well, I think it's kind of an odd-sounding story from China.
8: It's so odd, in fact, that it sounds a little tongue-in-cheek, and it concerns all of the bad news we've heard for years from China about the growing pollution problems there. This week, the city of Shanghai sent... All-time records for air pollution. It was another story that said that pilots who fly into the international airport in Beijing are going to have to receive special smog landing training just to be able to land a plane there on some of the worst days. CCTV, China Central Television, this massive government-run broadcaster, had another story this past week on its website. It made people so angry that it was pulled down from the website almost immediately. It listed five reasons why China's massive pollution problem might actually be a good thing.
0: Um, Five reasons why China's massive pollution might be a good thing, such as what, Peter?
8: Okay, get pencils and paper ready. Here are your five reasons why pollution is a good thing for China, according to this story. It unifies the Chinese people. Smog makes them more equal. It raises citizen awareness. It inspires funnier pollution jokes, and it inspires people to be more, more knowledgeable about the science of what's polluting them. At least that's what the web piece said on CCTV's site.
0: Well, are you sure this wasn't supposed to be satire? Maybe some clever writer slid it past a sleeping censor?
8: Well, if you know anything about CCTV, it's not exactly a hotbed of snark. It's never going to be confused for The Onion. It might have been a bit of satire. It might have been a serious attempt to put lipstick on a pig and make this awful pollution problem look good. Either way, it's a statement on how bad things have gotten in China.
0: Okay, before you go, Peter, uh, tell us what you have for us on the calendar.
8: Sometimes we get to end these on an upbeat note, and sometimes you just have to put that aside and end on an important note. It was 25 years ago this week that Chico Mendez was murdered.
0: Now, some folks may have forgotten about Chico Mendes, the rubber tapper who organized in the Amazon. Why don't you remind us?
8: Chico was a union leader. He came from a family of rubber tappers. He uh, tried to stop the exploitation of some of the workers in the Amazon. One of the issues down there is that the plantation owners would ban the teaching of math to the rubber tappers and their families, because if the rubber tappers learned how to do math, they would find out how badly they were getting ripped off by the plantation owners. One of the things that Chico is best remembered for is that he was also working to protect the Amazon. He became kind of um, an environmental icon around the world, and then he was found dead at his home. The plantation owner where he worked, the plantation owner's son and another worker, were convicted of murder. While he was alive and since he's been gone, Chico Mendez has inspired the protection of millions of acres in the Amazon, but there are millions more acres every year that get cut down. Thank you, Peter. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon.
0: Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News and DailyClimate.org. And you can find links to all these stories at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, getting some skin in the game of heating and cooling our buildings. That's just ahead on
3: Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Eco-activist Laura Turner Seidel is passionate about living an environmentally conscious life. That includes urban homesteading, growing a garden, keeping chickens and bees. But earlier this year, she had a setback in her beekeeping at her Atlanta home, as I learned during a tour of her carefully planned and designed garden.
9: Well, it was a process getting there. First of all, we did a locally planted indigenous grouping of native plants that are drought-resistant and healthy. We got rid of all of the chemicals. It's 100% organic. We fertilize with our compost and worm poop uh, so we don't have to use many chemicals to grow our vegetables and fruits and all of our beautiful flowers. And then I decided that we were going to plant clover for pollinators. And I tried to do everything in my power here that would really uh, be pollinator-friendly.
0: So you brought in some bees.
9: Well, we did. I had a, a local beekeeper bring a hive, and she established a colony. And we had them for about a year and a half. And one day, I you know, went out there to see how they were doing, and I noticed that there wasn't an, any activity. Uh-oh. Uh, it was not a good sign. And Cassandra Lawson, who is an urban beekeeper and keeps about 20 hives around the city, said, Laura, you really had a significant problem, and your bees are dead and gone. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, I've never seen anything like this before. And she said, your bees actually encapsulated the pollen within the hive— which tells us that the pollen was so toxic and they couldn't get it out of the hive, so they just tried to encapsulate it.
0: Now, bees sometimes die because they run out of food over the winter. It's very cold, but it wasn't too cold. They hadn't run out of
9: honey. That was not it at all. It was actually because uh, I live in an affluent neighborhood and there's a tremendous amount of chemicals that are used to keep a yard looking perfect. And a lot of the home products, the home garden products, are filled with pesticides that are very harmful to all insects, including our pollinators. And now, even in the big box stores, there was a study done recently, a case study. um, It was reported by Friends of the Earth a couple of weeks ago that 50% of the plants being sold there, flowering plants, had this certain class of chemicals in them called nicotinoids, which have been attributed or linked to uh, massive bee die-offs in this country, in Canada, and, um, and around the world. And actually, the EU banned it, this use, um, you know, temporarily, I think, for a two-year ban until they could prove that it was safe for pollinators.
0: Well, I want to see what you've done to your yard, then, to, to help pollinators. Oh, there's lots of clover here. In the
9: springtime, we have two different kinds of clover. We have the white clover and we have the red clover. It's not blooming now, but in the spring, it's a sea of white. And I can see my neighbors, um, and I've had a comment or two. It's like, don't let that disease come over here. (laughs) (laughs) But it gives me an opportunity to really inform and educate, which is what I love to do.
0: Are we going to have any luck here and find a four-leaf clover?
9: I'm really good at finding four leaf clovers, but I haven't had much time to look recently. But we might get to see some in the back. So I'll show you my raised beds. Come on. And uh, I'll even show you my chickens.
0: Chickens here yes, in the city? Yeah,
9: chickens, yes.
0: Is that legal in downtown Atlanta? Oh,
9: yes, chickens are quite legal, as well as bees. See, there they are, right there, the chickens oh yeah you see yeah so they're free-ranging chickens Uh uh-huh and then they have their little coop and they're more raised beds a patch of strawberries come on chicky chicky chickies
0: So the bees were right back here, huh?
9: Yes, they were, and um, my beekeeper, she had never seen anything like what happened with my beehive before, you know, how the bees encapsulated the toxic pollen, and she manages bees all over the city of Atlanta, and she says her most productive hives have always been in communities of low income, because they don't have the discretionary income to buy all the chemicals. I think that there's a lot to be said for that. We need to be more like that, organic and chemical free so that the pollinators can do what God made them to do.
0: Laura Turner Seidel is an eco activist in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks so much, Laura.
9: Thank you, Steve. We'll have to have you back more often. This was a real treat.
0: When we think of ways to heat and cool our buildings more efficiently, we tend to think of better insulation and better fuels, perhaps. But there are some extraordinary experiments that go much further, including those that mimic the way skin regulates body temperature. From the IEEE Spectrum magazine, National Science Foundation documentary, becoming bionic, Laurie Howell reports on The Living Wall.
5: We begin in the Engineering Center at the University of Colorado. It's a picturesque campus at the base of the Rocky Mountain foothills. This is where John Zai, an architectural engineering professor, leads a multidisciplinary team of engineers and architects on a creative venture of a lifetime. They're designing what they call a living wall. Traditional building designs just want
6: to block the heat. Hey, we don't want to heat. Don't let the heat in. We say, okay, let the heat in but we're going to deliver this heat to where we need it. Okay, so this is our building system lab, power loss lab donated by our Lassen family. So come
5: on in. John Zai calls the living wall the skin of the building because it would auto-regulate the temperature of a building just as skin helps regulate body temperature. The veins underneath the skin can take the heat
6: from the surface to the body and also can uh, have a fat that's a kind of insulation. So this automatic system, it's natural in our body. So if we
5: seek the whole building as a body, so the envelope, that's a skin. It's like a human vascular system of capillaries, veins, and arteries. Water is collected at each floor through small tubes and pipes within the living wall, controlled through a computerized brain or building automation system. The hot water is redistributed throughout the building for heating, domestic hot water, or adding heat into the shaded living walls to augment the chimney effect for cooling. The entire system works on a basic law of thermodynamics. The living walls move energy from hot to cold very rapidly and efficiently, whether collecting or distributing heat through water or air. So the envelope, that's a skin. So can we do something
6: similar or mimic to this natural body systems, which has the fat insulation layers have all these veins, those blood flow, the air flow, all the stuff, then very likely, we can have a building envelope, that can adapt to the environment. So whatever environment is changing, the core body, the body inside temperature, is always constant.
5: So if we can achieve that same scene, that'd be perfect. Zai says the living wall system could slash energy use by, get this, 75%. And energy use decreases 75%, not by improving heating and cooling systems, but by eliminating them altogether. No more boilers or chillers to create that comfortable room temperature. The living wall system would use passive heating and cooling, working with the outside temperature instead of against it. Zai's fellow CU professor Fred Andreas is the lead architect on the team putting this million dollar prototype together.
10: There's no reason other than business as usual that we heat and cool and light our buildings the way we have is hermetically sealed units that uh, are disconnected from the environment. So the idea of the living wall is to turn the skin of the building into a living skin, copying essentially biologic processes. And so trying to auto-regulate heat and cooling and ventilation and light through the skin of the building and supplant the huge... HVAC systems, heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems inside of any building and then using natural daylight as much as possible.
5: The outside layer will use current smart glass technology, which can block or tune the sun's rays and control how heat and light enter the wall. The next layer of the living wall is just open space for collecting and distributing passive heating and cooling. And the bottom of the wall there will be cool water coming in from a source, such as a river or a lake or the ocean or an underground aquifer. And the top of the wall will be hot from baking in the sun. Now, think about how a chimney works, and that's what happens here. The cool-hot temperature difference produces an updraft, and that updraft passively forces hot air up, up inside the multi-layered walls drawing cool air through the building and producing natural ventilation. The hotter the air, the faster it rises. So as crazy as it is to imagine, for this passive cooling design, the hotter the wall, the better.
6: That's a testing room we have here, which can test all the, the building systems, the walls, systems, so this is the
5: one of a chamber. We're walking along a conventional heating and cooling system which stretches for roughly 40 feet. There are two rooms which can be made any temperature. This will be where the team installs and tests its first prototype. So you see all this air systems so we have a, water panels here we can this is to provide
6: radiation we can simulate the solar radiation so we can you know mimic the outside environment so we don't have to go outside to the real test because the
5: challenge with the real environment test is The team envisions one day creating living wall kits for retrofitting buildings, possibly even homes. But right now they're focused on overcoming some puzzling design issues. Their biggest challenge is a layer in the living wall that will be made with something called hydrogels. Hydrogels are chemical compounds or polymers that absorb or release liquids depending on temperature. They're used in products such as diapers and for a variety of purposes such as tissue engineering. And they are key to making the living wall work because when the temperature changes, hydrogels embedded in the wall begin pumping water. Depending on the temperatures outside and inside the living wall, the hydrogels pump hot or cold water from one side of the wall to the other, cooling or heating the building. The big challenge for these researchers right now is how to contain the hydrogels within the living wall.
10: So that's the challenge, is how do we get a plastic Collection panel that maximizes heat collection at its best, and move that heat through these flexible gels into the depth of the panel. And how do we get those flexible gels into the panel in manufacturing? That's our challenge.
6: Right. That's why we cannot use the traditional concrete or wood. Right. We have to use a polymer material that's porous medium. So this kind of materials can be embedded or attached somewhere in the polymer. Those bubbles. So that makes a whole piece of the wall.
10: Here's the other challenge is it can't be glass because glass, when it's formed, is so hot that it would destroy these hydrogels. So we have to figure a way to get these hydrogels infused into this panel at a relatively low temperature.
5: This is not just another greener building design. This is a change in the way we'll design the buildings of the future. Typical systems and typical approaches
10: with the same kind of HVAC systems. Although they're very high efficiency and they're very um, uh, high technology, they're still using the same assumptions that we've used throughout the 20th century. And this fundamentally changes it. Basically moves away from the idea of interior condition buildings to passively controlled buildings.
5: Yeah, truly a game changer. Game changer. And that's why it's captured the imagination of the next generation of building designers. Grad students Tamzita Khan and Scott Rank are excited about what's on the horizon for smart building design.
2: You know, pretty soon there shouldn't be green architecture, it should just be architecture, and that should be in all of it, integrated into it. So I think, yeah, we've come a long way, but I think it definitely has
10: uh, a lot further to go as well.
4: If we don't take risk, then we will not move forward, and I think it's really important for us to take risks.
10: I keep saying to my students, I fundamentally believe that they'll be looking at this period of time right now, this change from the, to the 21st century, that they'll be looking back at this in a thousand years as the Renaissance. Equivalent to the artistic and cultural Renaissance that happened previously, I think that this is an architectural and engineering Renaissance that we're experiencing right now at the early part of the third millennium. I think the sky's the limit.
5: In the early part of the third millennium, reporting on what's possibly an architectural and engineering renaissance, I'm Laurie Howell.
0: Laurie's story on living walls comes from the IEEE Spectrum Magazine National Science Foundation documentary, Becoming Bionic. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. We bid farewell this week to our intern Catherine Rodway and wish her well. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes
3: from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms. www.redtomato.org This is PRI, Public Radio International.
9: PRI, Public Radio International.